and, and last night I was just thinking about your fascinating career, and I just wrote down some bullet points. I mean, you you started as an intern in politics. You created impact at ACLU as a chief of staff. And then for a few years, you spent as a lawyer clerk for multiple judges, U.S. District Court and U.S. Court of Appeals. You then practiced law, became a partner, Jennifer Block, and then you moved into academia, where you became a professor, subsequently an assistant dean at the American University, Washington College of Law. And then, I know I'm keep saying, and then there's, there's, there's more. Um, you helped to send the standards for training as a director at the National Attorney's General Training and Research Institute. And now, they must feel lucky to have you. You're the director of Attorney Learning and Development at Morrison Forrester. Amy, as you think about your experiences, obviously today we're going to talk about learning. Which of these experiences stand out as being most impactful in shaping the way you think about learning? That's that's a great question. And uh you know, as I, as I think about this, you know, I think about all these different segments of my career and the ways that I was able to glean different information from each. But when I go back to my time at the law school, you know, I, I was counseling law students, I was teaching. Um, and then when I moved into doing you know, significant work on curricular strategy, I was also focusing on career development because at that time, the legal industry was really struggling. So I worked with a lot of uh, students to help them understand how they could best position themselves. So when I think about all of the different pieces, they come together quite nicely. But that time in my career really helped to inform how I approach adult education and also employee and professional growth. And I can imagine the decisions we make early on have the biggest impact, right? Picking the, our path is, is super critical. Absolutely. So, so Amy, um, today we're going to take on an interesting topic, right? We're obviously going to talk about L&D, uh, but historically L&D has often been seen as siloed, as check the box kind of world. But we understand L&D isn't that. It has very profound impact on business. And we'll ask the question of can L&D become the differentiator in recruiting and retaining talent? Before we dive into that, how do you think about business goals, because I always see business goals as the sun. How do we be as close to the sun as possible? So how do you think about business goals inside the professional service world? That's a great question. So professional service firms, whether it's law, consulting, or otherwise, they exist for their clients. So excellent client service is imperative. Client service of course, focuses on the substantive expertise for which the firms are known, but also for providing a consummate experience to the clients in all respects. And professional services firms flourish or perish based on the client, exper- uh, the, the client experience and their reputation. I wanted to give a little context when we're talking about professional services firms, because I think it's it, it can be different than in a typical corporate environment. So for example, I'm at Morrison and Foster, it's also known as MOFO. It's one of the world's top law firms. There are about a thousand attorneys spread over 18 offices globally with 30 practice groups. And law firms like, uh, like most professional services organizations are structured a bit differently. So for example, law firms are often owned by more senior attorneys, they're partners in the firm. And then more junior associates um, come right out of law school and they are developing their expertise through an apprenticeship model over several years. So because 
The owners of the firm are responsible for managing and developing associates. They have an especially strong incentive to develop the associates into the strongest lawyers they can be. Uh, this isn't just theoretical or a nice thing to do. A 2017 NALP survey found that replacing a single associate can cost as much as $500,000, measured in recruitment fees, lost productivity, and training and onboarding. And we estimate that to actually be around $700,000 today. And that's, again, per associate. So going back to your original question, if you think about what a successful professional services firm looks like, it requires well-trained, engaged employees who are consistently being challenged who feel connected and feel uh, supported by the firm. And that's what allows it to thrive. High stakes, high stakes. When, you, when you, we think about how we work with talent and, and I, I can see how, you know, the folks that are involved, uh, they're vested. They're vested because, you know, they, they grew up within the organization, many of them probably, they became partners and now they're involved in bringing the next generation. But I also often think about, you know, how does their journey right, inform how they're approaching now the journey of others. But what are the areas of training that, and how are you approaching kind of the architecture of training? So along the lines of what we were just talking about, about being challenged, allowing the attorneys to grow, what we look at at MOFO is figuring out what experiences and trainings will allow those attorneys to continue to grow in all aspects of their professional personas. And because, you know, there are so many attorneys and someone, so many different needs, we actually break it down into four different areas of training. And then we tie those areas of training to the competencies we expect of attorneys at each level. Uh, for example, a new associate will have different training and work expectations than an attorney who has been practicing for six years. So our four areas, I'll, I'll, I'll mention them and then I'll describe them in turn. Uh, practice knowledge, practice skills, professional skills, and attorney engagement. So with practice knowledge, that's really asking the question, what's the substantive law that an attorney practicing in a specific field needs to know? So as I mentioned, we have approximately 30 practice groups and 1,000 attorneys at MOFO. So the type of practice knowledge on which the firm trains is vast. In the practice skills area, these are the skills that attorneys need to succeed in their practice areas. They're going to vary significantly depending on the type of work attorneys do. So a litigator, for example, would get training in how to conduct investigations, while a transactional lawyer might be trained in how to draft effective contracts. Uh, third is our category of professional skills. Professional skills are what we expect all attorneys in our firm to have, regardless of their practice area. This is what helps them to be excellent lawyers, to be responsive to clients, and to be wonderful colleagues. Topics uh, really mirror our core values of the firm, so focused on communication, inclusivity, and collaboration, among others. And then finally, we have attorney engagement. So businesses operating optimally look at the whole employee, and that helps them to focus on the personal support that attorneys need, things like navigating the workplace, work-life balance, and overall satisfaction and wellness. Let's let's go a little deeper into intern engagement. I'm curious to learn more about that area. How, how do you approach it? So at MoFo, we are very committed to attorney engagement because it's key to the success of the firm. And so on my team at MoFo, we focus on providing the attorneys across the firm with the support to engage 
associates, whether it's virtual, in person, or hybrid. And it's really not lip service. One of the senior members of my team directs our attorney engagement efforts because this is such a fundamental aspect of what we do. So what we do is provide support to practice groups and individual partners to help them. Uh, because, you know, whether it's in person or hybrid or virtual, it just really requires a level, a level of intentionality that we want to make sure that the that the, uh, the partners and the more senior associates have the ability uh, and the training that they need to succeed in that way. Mm -hmm. Let's think about engagement here. You know, a few weeks ago, we had Gallup jump on and talk about the role of the manager in the in engagement of, of, the of the individual within their, every organization. When you think about the variance, 70% of the employee experience variance is their manager. It makes sense, right? So how do you think about the role of the manager in the intern engagement? And I, I can imagine they're busy, there's a lot going on, perhaps there are partners that are involved, they're in a billable hours world. H how do you approach that question and how do you see that relationship between the attorney and their manager. Yeah, I, I just see it as being being absolutely critical to the experience of of all at the firm. People stay at places where they feel valued, where they feel cared for, where there is a focus on their continuous growth. And this is, of course, you know, it, it's fundamental to our business model. It's fundamental to the culture of the firm because when partners help associates to navigate our firm. They boost engagement and satisfaction, but they also can turbocharge productivity. So some, some attorney engagement can include mentoring, but it's often less formal. It could include coaching on the unspoken rules within the firm or providing, you know, really candid career advice, helping associates develop networks over time. As I mentioned earlier, because we work in an apprenticeship model, this is, you know, this is based on you know, many, many decades, if not centuries of experience of how, of how attorneys grow. And when we help the attorneys to make sure that they are getting, uh, th that for example, the partners are, get, get the information they need to be able to be successful, then the associates will thrive as well. And how does, how do you support the, the management, the leadership styles? I, I never like to use the word manager Kind of, how do you support the leadership, right? So here's an attorney, they reach a certain level in their career, and now they're going to lead others. Um, and, and we've had multiple conversations where leadership is not for everybody. And, and we, often we may not have had the best leaders ourselves, so now we're going to immaculate or, or replicate the behaviors that are not most beneficial. So, so Amy, how do you approach creating a level of standard within the leaders within the organization? Yeah, well, perhaps big L leadership isn't for everyone, but everyone can be a leader. Uh, some of it seems innate to some, but training is, is key. I mean, when we talk about training be, being a differentiator, this is a great example of how that happens. Uh, at MOFO, we have a series of different level-based learning opportunities for all of our attorneys across the firm. So in the first year, for example, they have a certain a, a type of event where all of the attorneys get together in the third year, fifth year, new partners, and so on. And in all of those different events, they're, they're often... Uh, a couple of days in person where we bring people from around the world, followed by a several month cohort experience. And at each level, we're providing the type of leadership development that attorneys at that level are expected to have. Because for those that it doesn't come innately, for those who 
uh, who are not necessarily focused on it, when we talk about it, when we have candid conversations, when we give them the information they need to succeed, then they're able to uh, to infuse it into their own their own work styles. I love that you're giving them the support and the structure for them to you know to, to unlock the the leader within. Yes. You mentioned having candid conversations, and it takes me down the question of feedback. Um, what is what is the importance of feedback in your opinion to continue to stay on the theme of the relationship between the leader and um, the individual contributor? Yeah, I have, I have many thoughts about feedback and I'm, I'm glad to chat about that because I think the feedback is important today and in the future. So as we're talking about the future of work, we really have to think about what does the what what are the employees of the future looking looking for? So for example, you know, in terms of generational shifts with Gen Z entering the professional services space, they're going to expect more feedback, but it doesn't only help them. It also helps to meet the goals of the business. And so I think feedback is just such a great example of the shifting needs that we're going to see in the marketplace. My view is that the times of the top down once a year feedback session are gone. We, we really need to ensure that employees know what's working know what's not and how they can improve. So annual performance valuations have a place, but they were never intended to include surprises about whether someone's work from many months ago was up to par. Uh, we, in, man, in many spaces, we have incentivized this once a year annual feedback period, but what we have to do instead is move to a culture of continuous feedback. I've, I've thought about this in the context of, you know, if you're driving a car, and you bring it in for annual service, and you find out in November that in January your car started to go and started to have some issues. That's not effective, and you know it's a it's a simplified uh, way to explain it. But but it in other contexts and other areas of our lives, we would never we would never look to an annual evaluation process. So in in that respect, though, I've spent considerable time thinking about feedback and what holds people back in giving it and being able to and open to receiving it. And in my view, there are two main impediments and they feed off of each other. First is time. Everyone's busy, feedback isn't prioritized. But second and much more fundamentally and importantly are the psychological aspects of vulnerability and comfort. I don't wanna tell them that their work was bad. I don't like being uncomfortable. I don't want to push them um, uh, to do more, or I don't want them to push back against me if I give them negative feedback. I'm busy. I don't have time. I'll do it later. You know, and then what happens? Nothing. And I, I'd imagine that many of your listeners have either experienced this cycle themselves or have seen it played out. It's a tough topic. It, it is. When we talk about feedback. But when I, when I think about what the future of it could be, like what if we agreed as a group, a department, an organization, a firm, whatever it is, that any feedback is good feedback, that knowing someone's perceptions doesn't devalue us and shouldn't put us on the defensive, but instead it helps us to meet our own individual goals for success and the firm's business goals. And I realize this may sound lofty, but if we get people to commit to it, perhaps even starting small with groups of people who are more comfortable with the concept, then we can build on it as the successes become clear. I, I, I'm pretty confident that, that if we reframed what feedback looks like, 
more broadly, we can get there. I love your passion around feedback. Such such an interesting topic and, and the role it plays in retaining talent and in individual growth journeys for all of us. I, I was actually having a, a fun uh, idea with contemplating are attorneys going to be easier to adapt to feedback or more challenging because of how they're trained from conflict, being comfortable with it, from negotiating their positions, and also does it matter giving it or receiving it? So kind of, I'm just curious, do you think attorneys are predisposed to being more open to feedback? And does it matter giving it or receiving it? Or is it more challenging for them compared to other professions? Yeah, I, I, I could see it going either way. Uh, but depending on the culture that they're brought into, depending on whether they're trained in receiving it, that they feel comfortable in doing it, I think attorneys, uh, because of the, the level of critical thinking, actually really have the ability to be some of the best providers of feedback across the board. Uh, but it is getting over that, that initial hump of being risk averse and uh, not feeling comfortable in that space. But I would, I would guess that that's actually something that that happens across industries, not just in the legal industry. Totally agree. And, and this is maybe me oversimplifying it, but if you know the feedback that's coming at you is coming from a place of care, maybe aligned uh, in terms of the goals and objectives, hey, this is how we can do better. As long as it's coming from a good place, then on your receiving end, the question is how to reframe, how to create this first reaction of gratitude, you know, feedback is a gift. And then reflection follows. Well said. And and the the next the next steps, you know, following the reflection is really putting that feedback into action, coming up with plans about how they can take the feedback, incorporate it into their into their daily routines, but then also think about what the next growth opportunities are for the person who just received the feedback. Mm-hmm. And if we go full full circle and we ask ourselves, what is the role of feedback as we think about the business goals of the organization? How, in other words, how can giving and receiving feedback improve the performance of the organization? Yeah, so if we infuse feedback into the culture, if we embrace it, if we focus on a way that this allows us to continuously improve the attorney's client service, their connection, their commitment to the firm, it drives business, it reduces attrition, it increases retention, uh, and also continues to improve the reputation of the firm as a destination for top legal talent, uh, which in turn helps recruiting. Mm -hmm. And certainly the service that the clients are going to receive, right? Um, Fascinating. Um, You and I, in our conversations, touched briefly on leaders' ability to think about feedback in, in terms of competencies, right? Competencies for the, for the attorneys. Can, can you highlight that a bit? Yeah. In, in my view, this is really an area where we can make a difference in ensuring that providing feedback is not seen as a check-the-box requirement. You know, if we continuously and regularly focus on the firm's overall business needs, if we create this continue this uh, culture of continuous and timely feedback about the expectations we have for attorneys at each stage, they're not only going to grow in the way the firm expects, but they are going to in turn incorporate the culture of feedback into their own leadership and management as they progress. 
And this applies both to the business needs we identify today and the ones that are going to evolve in the future because they are going to evolve. And either way, it's critical that employees know what's expected of them at each stage and receive that feedback about how they're doing, how they can continue to grow to make sure that they don't stagnate. You know, they want to have opportunities for continuous growth. They want to be part of a culture that they feel connected to and connecting the feedback to competencies is key to that. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I'd love to share what we do at MoFo in that respect. So we, we've had in, uh, for a long time an attorney development framework that does exactly this, what we were just talking about. Next year, we're actually rolling out a new approach. It's called MyMofo, and it's going to be a comprehensive new structure to ensuring that not only attorneys know what's expected of them at every stage, but also will know exactly how they can plug into different trainings, pro bono practice opportunities, coaching and career development, all intended to help them define their careers and continue to grow. Ultimately, when we do that, when we, when we um, empower these attorneys to take hold of their careers, it continues to uh, improve the business, improve the associate and attorney experience, and, uh, and and improve the client experience. Makes sense. I, I love that, Amy. So, so l l let's go toward kind of the question of the future of people initiatives. And and often what I hear, you know, common sense is in common action. You know, for those that are convinced that giving and receiving feedback is a good idea, the next question becomes, how do you get through the noise? How do you, they're so busy. How do we, how do we think about those challenges getting through in the context of the future. Dream with me. H how do we remind them? How do we, you know, and we think about in our uh, today that Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, name your social media of choice. Somehow that's getting through. Um, is there anything there for us to learn? So uh, wonder with me, Amy. Yeah, I, I love that idea. I mean, to me, this is actually one of the silver linings of the pandemic you know, the shift in workplace expect expectations that came out of it actually allow us the opportunity to really rethink and reimagine how we use our time, our efforts, and also our expertise to help to help attorneys uh, and employees thrive. And I, I believe that this is where intentionality really comes into play. You know, we I, I've heard many people say, you know, well, we used to run into each other in the in the in the office, or, you know, we've uh, be getting, you know, be at the water cooler at the same time. But in a global distributed firm, like query whether that was really ever completely the case anyway. So, so what can we do when we start with little ideas, little points, little ways to continue to get people involved and feeling connected that builds on each other? So, you know, I'll just give some examples in the law firm space, like after a call with a client, follow up with the associate, provide more context, ask them questions about what they learned or what questions they have about what they just experienced. And then also working with attorneys very purposefully and finding out what are the stretch assignments that they want? Where are the areas that they haven't had a chance to grow yet uh, that they want to? And keep that in the, in the back of your mind. Um, this is all part of creating a culture that it's part of the norm rather than something more formal. It just becomes part of, of someone's routine when we do it in small little bits. And I like the way you led into that with thinking about TikTok or you know, Reels or anything like that because 
these little bits are what actually seem to resonate more with people. And that's some of the learning that we do too with micro learning opportunities. We, we want to give small pieces where people can actually take it and understand it and really embed it into their routine. Yeah, I was just reflecting on intentionality as a norm. You're, you're saying, hey, we've got to be intentional. We're changing the norms. And I think that's fascinating. Go ahead, Amy. I, the, uh, please continue the thought. Yeah, well, um, I, was, I was actually thinking about this in the context of intentionality as well, in that mindset is key when we look at like the, psychological, the, the psychology of, of feedback. So I mentioned earlier that we offer coaching programs. They're available firm-wide, and we also offer trainings. But many of those coaching and trainings that we offer are focused on growth mindset, on critical thinking, on resiliency. Because when we shift the outlook about what it means to engage, what it means to, to understand uh, someone else's perceptions, it actually helps us to look at feedback in a more positive way or through a different lens that they may not have if they're not thinking with, for example, a growth mindset. Yeah, and, and multiple times on the podcast, it's come up that our default brain is negative, and and it's part of the evolution that it's it's you know that's how we're here for those that may have been very positive back in the day, and and you know that when the trees are are shuffling and we're curious what's what's there, those folks may not be here anymore, right? That's evolution. That was the tiger that came out, but now is this mindset that we brought, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, is that the right mindset to have? Or when we're receiving feedback and our brain is reacting maybe similarly to danger, danger, what do I do, fight or flight? Uh, how do we reframe that and, and you supporting the folks within your organization to getting them in a growth mindset? That's amazing. So, yeah, is there anything there for us to, to go deeper on intentionality and the, you said micro learning? Uh, I keep wondering, how do we get through the noise? And, and I heard you and I think you're not on the same page as shortening the experiences. There's a lot of deep work they do elsewhere. If you make this challenging, they're probably not going to proceed. If the ask is, hey, put aside what you're doing and now watch a 45 minute video or read this book or read this you know, PDF, um, any other ideas that you have how, how for us to continue, again, future state, uh, be able to get their attention? The number one thing that I focus on in the context of what trainings we're offering to whom and when is what is relevant. We don't want to be providing any kind of learning opportunities or even stretch work opportunities for people who aren't ready for them or don't need them. Because the quickest way to have someone turn off from being open to the concepts of learning and development, and oftentimes this is a different way than th that people have looked at things before anyway, is to give them something that's not relevant to them and to have them either scratching their heads about, well, why am I sitting here? What am I, why am I, why am I in this room or on the Zoom or, you know, clicking through this PDF? Um, you know, is to have them turn off. And we don't want that to happen. So if we focus on micro learnings that are intentionally structured because of where they are, because of what their needs are, that helps with buy-in, retention, and uh, really incorporating it into into their own careers and their uh, their experiences. You know, just glad you brought up relevance, N nailed it. You know, this, this idea that they're a captured audience for 
any experience, learning and development experience, that is not the case. Even if you force them to sit through the experience, they've checked out. This is not helpful. It's detrimental. Um, Amy, yeah. Amy, the folks that are listening in, you know, change agents within organizations. And uh, many are listening because they want to gain the insights and advice how to gain internal alignment first. Internal alignment with their executive teams, how to create the programs that are going to be closer to the sun, the business goals, more relevant and um, more impactful for the organization. What advice would you give them as they continue their journey to continue to evolve their L&D programs, especially in this context of of making that the differentiator in recruiting and talent and retaining talent? In our group, I can say that we are we're experts in providing learning and development. We are not the experts in the subject matter. And so it is absolutely critical to have strong relationships with the subject matter experts to make sure that the needs are actually being met. It's not enough to say, this is how we've done it before, or I think this is what they need. You don't know what they need. You need to be talking with the actual people who are either supervising or maybe even entry-level people about what it is that they think that they need to learn and then developing an actionable structured curriculum that is not, uh, you know, that's not reinvented every year. We want to know what are the needs, how do we meet them, and how can we best support you, the subject matter experts. It's just, it's so important because if it is seen, it's, it's similar to, it's, a, it's, a, it's similar to the relevancy dis- discussion, but if the uh, subject matter experts are not seeing the impact of the learning, if they don't find that it is relevant to their everyday practice, they're not going to be partners in this journey either. So it is so critical to make sure that they are, that they are committed, that you have them on, on your side at, at MOFO. We actually have a, uh, a whole structure in place where we have what we call learning and development liaisons. So one partner from each practice group is designated as the learning and development liaison. They develop the types of trainings that they want. We execute on them. We make sure that, uh, that they're being offered at times that make sense for the associates who are, who are taking them. And then of course, we also, when we launch my MOFO, we're going to be tying that to the competency project. And so making sure that it's a rational plan is just so important because it can't just be seen as, well, here's learning and development over here, but it's not actually connected to what the firm is doing. A rational plan working in partnership with the subject matter experts that's actionable and structured and um, you know, looking at the and evaluating the impact ongoing. Amazing advice, Amy. I, I appreciated having you on. I, I, you know, thank you for the time and I look forward to continuing the discussion. This is awesome. Likewise, this is a great podcast and I'm glad to be part of it. So thank you. Awesome, Amy. Over and out.